Please check the description for a link to paper copies of the books featured and upcoming as well as links to other products that will help support this podcast. Thanks for being awesome. Chapter 8 Digital Money The global telecommunication revolution, starting with the production of the first fully programmable computer in the 1950s, has encroached on an increasing number of material aspects of life, providing engineering solutions to hitherto age-old problems. While banks and startup firms increasingly utilized computer and network technology for payments and record-keeping, the innovations that succeeded did not provide a new form of money, and the innovations that tried to provide a new form of money all failed. Bitcoin represents the first truly digital solution to the problem of money, and in it, we find a potential solution to the problems of saleability, soundness, and sovereignty. Bitcoin has operated with practically no failure for the past nine years, and if it continues to operate like this for the next 90, it will be a compelling solution to the problem of money, offering individual sovereignty over money that is resistant to unexpected inflation while also being highly saleable across space, scale, and time. Should Bitcoin continue to operate as it already has, all the previous technologies humans have employed is money. Shells, salt, cattle, precious metals, and government paper may appear quaint anachronisms in our modern world, abacuses next to our modern computers. We saw how the introduction of metallurgy produced solutions to the problem of money that were superior to beads, shellfish, and other artifacts, and how the emergence of regular coinage allowed gold and silver coins to emerge as superior forms of money to irregular lumps of metal. We further saw how gold-backed banking allowed gold to dominate as the global monetary standard and led to the demonetization of silver. From the necessity of centralizing gold, arose government money backed by gold, which was more saleable in scale. But with it came government expansion of the money supply and coercive control which eventually destroyed money's soundness and sovereignty. Every step of the way, technological advances and realities shaped the monetary standards that people employed, and the consequences to economies and society were enormous. Societies and individuals who chose a sound monetary standard, such as the Romans under Caesar, the Byzantines under Constantine, or Europeans under the gold standard, benefited immensely. Those who had unsound or technologically inferior money, such as Yap Islanders with the arrival of O'Keefe, West Africans using glass beads, or the Chinese on a silver standard in the 19th century, paid a heavy price. Bitcoin represents a new technological solution to the money problem, born out of the digital age, utilizing several technological innovations that were developed over the past few decades and building on many attempts at producing digital money to deliver something which was almost unimaginable before it was invented. To understand why, we will focus on the monetary properties of Bitcoin, as well as the economic performance of the network since its inception. In the same way that an audiobook on the gold standard would not discuss the chemical properties of gold, this chapter will not delve too much into the technical details of the operation of the Bitcoin network. Instead, 
focusing on the monetary properties of the Bitcoin currency. Bitcoin as Digital Cash To understand the significance of a technology for digital cash, it is instructive to look at the world before Bitcoin was invented, when one could neatly divide payment methods into two distinct, non-overlapping categories. 1. Cash payments, which are carried out in person between two parties. These payments have the convenience of being immediate and final and require no trust on the part of either transacting party. There is no delay in the execution of the payment, and no third party can effectively intervene to stop such payments. Their main drawback is the need for the two parties to be physically present in the same place at the same time, a problem which becomes more and more pronounced as telecommunication makes it more likely for individuals to want to transact with persons who are not in their immediate vicinity. 2. Intermediated Payments which require a trusted third party and comprise checks, credit cards, debit cards, bank wire transfers, money transfer services, and more recent innovations such as PayPal. By definition, intermediated payment involves a third party handling the money transfer between the two transacting parties. The main advantages of intermediated payments are allowing payments without the two parties having to be at the same place at the same time, and allowing the payer to make payment without having to carry her money on her. Their main drawback is the trust that is required in execution of the transactions, the risk of the third party being compromised, and the costs and time required for the payment to be completed and cleared to allow the recipient to spend it. Both forms of payment have their advantages and drawbacks, and most people resort to a combination of the two in their economic transactions. Before the invention of Bitcoin, intermediated payments included, though were not limited to, all forms of digital payment. The nature of digital objects, since the inception of computers, is that they are not scarce. They can be reproduced endlessly and as such it was impossible to make a currency out of them because sending them will only duplicate them. Any form of electronic payment had to be carried out via an intermediary because of the danger of double spending. There was no way of guaranteeing that the payer was being honest with his funds and not using them more than once, unless there was a trusted third party overseeing the account and able to verify the integrity of the payments carried out. Cash transactions were confined to the physical realm of direct contact, while all digital forms of payments had to be supervised by a third party. After years of innovative trial and error by many programmers, and through relying on a wide range of technologies, Bitcoin was the first engineering solution that allowed for digital payments without having to rely on a trusted third-party intermediary. By being the first digital object that is verifiably scarce, Bitcoin is the first example of digital cash. There are several drawbacks to transacting through trusted third parties, which make digital cash a valuable proposition for many. Third parties are by their very nature an added security weakness. Involving an extra party in your transaction inherently introduces risk, 
because it opens up new possibilities for theft or technical failure. Further, payment through intermediaries leaves the parties vulnerable to surveillance and bans by political authorities. In other words, when resorting to any form of digital payment, there was no alternative to trusting in a third party, and whichever political authorities rule over it, and being subject to the risk of the political authorities stopping the payment under pretexts of security, terrorism, or money laundering. To make matters worse, intermediated payments always involve a risk of fraud, which raises transaction costs and delays final settlement of payments. In other words, intermediated payments take away a significant share of the properties of money as a medium of exchange controlled by its owner, with high liquidity for him to sell whenever he wants. Of the most persistent characteristics of money historically are fungibility, any unit of money is equivalent to any other unit, and liquidity, ability of the owner to sell quickly at market price. People choose monies that are fungible and liquid because they want sovereignty over their money. Sovereign money contains within it all the permission needed to spend it. The desire for others to hold it exceeds the ability of others to impose controls on it. While intermediated payments compromise some of the desirable features of money, these shortcomings are not present in physical cash transactions. But as more trade and employment takes place over long distances thanks to modern telecommunication, physical cash transactions become prohibitively impractical. The move toward digital payments was reducing the amount of sovereignty people have over their own money and leaving them subject to the whims of the third parties they had no choice but to trust. Further, the move from gold, which is money that nobody can print, toward fiat currencies whose supply is controlled by central banks, further reduced people's sovereignty over their wealth and left them helpless in the face of the slow erosion of the value of their money as central banks inflated the money supply to fund government operation. It became increasingly impractical to accumulate capital and wealth without the permission of the government issuing that money. Satoshi Nakamoto's motivation for Bitcoin was to create a purely peer-to-peer -peer form of electronic cash that would not require trust in third parties for transactions and whose supply cannot be altered by any other party. In other words, Bitcoin would bring the desirable features of physical cash, lack of intermediaries, finality of transactions, to the digital realm, and combine them with an ironclad monetary policy that cannot be manipulated to produce unexpected inflation to benefit an outside party at the expense of holders. Nakamoto succeeded in achieving this through the utilization of a few important, though not widely understood, technologies a distributed peer-to-peer -peer network with no single point of failure, hashing, digital signatures, and proof-of-work. Nakamoto removed the need for trust in a third party by building Bitcoin on a foundation of very thorough and ironclad proof and verification. It is fair to say that the central operational feature of Bitcoin is verification, and only because of that can Bitcoin remove the need for trust completely. Every transaction has to be recorded by every member of the network so that they all share one common ledger of balances and transactions. Whenever a member of the network transfers a sum to another member, all network members can verify the sender has a sufficient balance. 
and nodes compete to be the first to update the ledger with a new block of transactions every 10 minutes. In order for a node to commit a block of transactions to the ledger, it has to expend processing power on solving complicated mathematical problems that are hard to solve, but whose correct solution is easy to verify. This is the proof-of-work, POW, system. And only with the correct solution can a block be committed and verified by all network members. While these mathematical problems are unrelated to the Bitcoin transactions, they are indispensable to the operation of the system, as they force the verifying nodes to expend processing power, which would be wasted if they included fraudulent transactions. Once a node solves the proof of work correctly and announces the transactions, other nodes on the network vote for its validity, and once a majority has voted to approve the block, nodes begin committing transactions to a new block to be amended to the previous one and solving the new proof of work for it. Crucially, the node that commits a valid block of transactions to the network receives a block reward consisting of brand new bitcoins added to the supply along with all the transaction fees paid by the people who are transacting. This process is what is referred to as mining, analogous to the mining of precious metals, and is why nodes that solve proof-of-work are known as miners. This block reward compensates the miners for the resources they committed to proof-of-work. Whereas in a modern central bank, the new money created goes to finance lending and government spending, in Bitcoin the new money goes only to those who spend resources on updating the ledger. Nakamoto programmed Bitcoin to produce a new block roughly every 10 minutes, and for each block to contain a reward of 50 coins in the first four years of Bitcoin's operation, to be halved afterwards to 25 coins, and further halved every four years. The quantity of Bitcoins created is pre-programmed and cannot be altered no matter how much effort and energy is expended on proof-of-work. This is achieved through a process called difficulty adjustment, which is perhaps the most ingenious aspect of Bitcoin's design. As more people choose to hold Bitcoin, this drives up the market value of Bitcoin and makes mining new coins more profitable, which drives more miners to expend more resources on solving proof-of-work problems. More miners means more processing power, which would result in the solutions to the proof-of-work being arrived at faster, thus increasing the rate of issuance of new bitcoins. But as the processing power rises, bitcoin will raise the difficulty of the mathematical problems needed to unlock the mining rewards to ensure blocks will continue to take around 10 minutes to be produced. Difficulty adjustment is the most reliable technology for making hard money and limiting the stock-to-flow ratio from rising and it makes Bitcoin fundamentally different from every other money. Whereas the rise in value of any money leads to more resources dedicated to its production and thus an increase in its supply, as Bitcoin's value rises, more effort to produce Bitcoins does not lead to the production of more Bitcoins. Instead, it just leads to an increase in the processing power necessary to commit valid transactions to the Bitcoin network which only serves to make the network more secure and difficult to compromise. Bitcoin is the hardest money ever invented, 
growth in its value cannot possibly increase its supply. It can only make the network more secure and immune to attack. For every other money, as its value rises, those who can produce it will start producing more of it, whether it is rye stones, seashells, silver, gold, copper, or government money. Everyone will have an incentive to try to produce more. The harder it was to produce new quantities of the money in response to price rises, the more likely it was to be adopted widely and used, and the more a society would prosper because it would mean individuals' efforts at producing wealth will go towards serving one another, not producing money, an activity with no added value to society, because any supply of money is enough to run any economy. Gold became the prime money of every civilized society precisely because it was the hardest to produce. But Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment makes it even harder to produce. A massive increase in the price of gold will, in the long run, lead to larger quantities being produced. But no matter how high the price of Bitcoins rises, the supply stays the same and the safety of the network only increases. The security of Bitcoin lies in the asymmetry between the cost of solving the proof-of-work necessary to commit a transaction to the ledger and the cost of verifying its validity. It costs ever-increasing quantities of electricity and processing power to record transactions. But the cost of verifying the validity of the transactions is close to zero and will remain at that level no matter how much Bitcoin grows. To try to commit fraudulent transactions to the Bitcoin ledger is to deliberately waste resources on solving the proof of work, only to watch nodes rejected at almost no cost, thereby withholding the block reward from the miner. As time goes by, it becomes increasingly difficult to alter the record, as the energy needed is larger than the energy already expended, which only grows with time. This highly complex iterative process has grown to require vast quantities of processing power and electricity, but produces a ledger of ownership and transactions that is beyond dispute, without having to rely on the trustworthiness of any single third party. Bitcoin is built on 100% verification and 0% trust. Bitcoin's shared ledger can be likened to the rye stones of Yap Island discussed in Chapter 2 in that the money does not actually move for transactions to take place. Whereas in Yop, the islanders would meet to announce the transfer of the ownership of a stone from one person to the other, and the entire town would know who owned which stone, in Bitcoin, members of the network would broadcast their transaction to all network members, who would verify that the sender has the balance necessary for the transaction and credit it to the recipient. To the extent that the digital coins exist, they are simply entries on a ledger, and a verified transaction changes the ownership of the coins on the ledger from the sender to the recipient. Ownership of the coins is assigned through public addresses, not by the name of the holder, and access to the coins owned by an address is secured through the ownership of the private key, a string of characters analogous to a password. Whereas the rye stone's physical heft made their divisibility highly impractical, Bitcoin faces no such problem. Bitcoin's supply is made up of a maximum of 21 million coins, each of which is divisible into 100 million satoshis, 
making it highly saleable across scales. Whereas the Yapis stones were only practical for a few transactions, in a small island with a small population who knew each other very well, Bitcoin has far superior saleability across space because the digital ledger is accessible by anyone worldwide with an internet connection. What keeps Bitcoin nodes honest individually is that if they were dishonest, they would be discovered immediately, making dishonesty exactly as effective as doing nothing but involving a higher cost. Collectively, what prevents a majority from colluding to be dishonest is that if they were to succeed in compromising the integrity of the ledger of transactions, the entire value proposition of Bitcoin would be destroyed and the Bitcoin token's value would collapse to nothing. Collusion costs a lot, but it would itself lead to its loot becoming worthless. In other words, Bitcoin relies on economic incentives, making fraud far costlier than its rewards. No single entity is relied upon for maintaining the ledger, and no single individual can alter the record on it without the consent of a majority of network members. What determines the validity of the transaction is not the word of a single authority, but the software running the individual nodes on the network. Ralph Merkel, inventor of the Merkel tree data structure, which is utilized by Bitcoin to record transactions, had a remarkable way of describing Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the first example of a new form of life. It lives and breathes on the Internet. It lives because it can pay people to keep it alive. It lives because it performs a useful service that people will pay it to perform. It lives because anyone anywhere can run a copy of its code. It lives because all the running copies are constantly talking to each other. It lives because if any one copy is corrupted, it is discarded, quickly and without any fuss or muss. It lives because it is radically transparent. Anyone can see its code and see exactly what it does. It can't be changed. It can't be argued with. It can't be tampered with. It can't be corrupted. It can't be stopped. It can't even be interrupted. If nuclear war destroyed half of our planet, it would continue to live uncorrupted. It would continue to offer its services. It would continue to pay people to keep it alive. The only way to shut it down is to kill every server that hosts it, which is hard because a lot of servers host it in a lot of countries, and a lot of people want to use it. Realistically, the only way to kill it is to make the service it offers so useless and obsolete that no one wants to use it, so obsolete that no one wants to pay for it, no one wants to host it. Then it will have no money to pay anyone. Then it will starve to death. But as long as there are people who want to use it, it's very hard to kill, or corrupt, or stop, or interrupt. Bitcoin is a technology that survives for the very same reason the wheel, knife, phone, or any technology survives. It offers its users benefits from using it. Users, miners, and node operators are all rewarded economically from interacting with Bitcoin. And that is what keeps it going. It's worth adding that all the parties that make Bitcoin work are individually dispensable to its operation. Nobody is essential to Bitcoin. 
And if anybody wants to alter Bitcoin, Bitcoin is perfectly capable of continuing to operate as it is without whatever input anyone has on this. This will help us understand the immutable nature of Bitcoin in Chapter 10, and why attempts at making serious changes to the Bitcoin code will almost inevitably lead to the creation of a knockoff version of Bitcoin, but one that cannot possibly recreate the economic balance of incentives that keeps Bitcoin operational and immutable. Bitcoin can also be understood as a spontaneously emergent and autonomous firm which provides a new form of money and a new payments network. There is no management or corporate structure to this firm, as all decisions are automated and pre-programmed. Volunteer coders in an open-source project can present changes and improvements to the code, but it is up to users to choose to adopt them or not. The value proposition of this firm is that its money supply is completely inelastic in response to increased demand and price. Instead, increased demand just leads to a safer network, due to the mining difficulty adjustment. Miners invest electricity and processing power in the mining infrastructure that protects the network because they are rewarded for it. Bitcoin users pay transaction fees and buy the coins from the miners because they want to utilize digital cash and benefit from the appreciation over time, and in the process, they finance the miners' investment in operating the network. The investment in POW mining hardware makes the network more secure and can be understood as the firm's capital. The more the demand for the network grows, the more valuable the miners' rewards and transaction fees become, which necessitates more processing power to generate new coins, increasing the company's capital, making the network more secure, and the coins harder to produce. It's an economic arrangement that has been productive and lucrative to everyone involved, which in turn leads to the network continuing to grow at an astonishing pace. With this technological design, Nakamoto was able to invent digital scarcity. Bitcoin is the first example of a digital good that is scarce and cannot be reproduced infinitely. While it is trivial to send a digital object from one location to another in the digital network, as is done with email, text messaging, or file downloads, it is more accurate to describe these processes as copying rather than sending, because the digital objects remain with the sender and can be reproduced infinitely. Bitcoin is the first example of a digital good, whose transfer stops it from being owned by the sender. Beyond digital scarcity, Bitcoin is also the first example of absolute scarcity. The only liquid commodity, digital or physical, with a set fixed quantity that cannot conceivably be increased. Until the invention of Bitcoin, scarcity was always relative, never absolute. It is a common misconception to imagine that any physical good is finite or absolutely scarce, because the limit on the quantity we can produce of any good is never its prevalence in the planet, but the effort and time dedicated to producing it. With its absolute scarcity, Bitcoin is highly saleable across time. This is a critical point which will be explicated further in Chapter 9 on Bitcoin's role as a store of value. Supply, Value, and Transactions
It had always been theoretically possible to produce an asset with a predictably constant or low rate of supply growth to allow it to maintain its monetary role. But reality, as always, had proven far trickier than theory. Governments would never allow private parties to issue their own private currencies and transgress on the main way in which government funds itself and grows. So government would always want to monopolize money production and face too strong a temptation to engage in the increase of the money supply. But with the invention of Bitcoin, the world had finally arrived at a synthetic form of money that had an ironclad guarantee governing its low rate of supply growth. Bitcoin takes the macroeconomists, politicians, presidents, revolutionary leaders, military dictators, and TV pundits out of monetary policy altogether. Money supply growth is determined by a programmed function adopted by all members of the network. There may have been a time at the start of this currency when this inflation schedule could have been conceivably changed. But that time has well passed. For all practical intents and purposes, Bitcoin's inflation schedule, like its record of transactions, is immutable. While for the first few years of Bitcoin's existence, the supply growth was very high, and the guarantee that the supply schedule would not be altered was not entirely credible, as time went by the supply growth rate dropped, and the credibility of the network in maintaining this supply schedule has increased and continues to rise with each passing day in which no serious changes are made to the network. Bitcoin blocks are added to the shared ledger roughly every 10 minutes. At the birth of the network, the block reward was programmed to be 50 bitcoins per block. Every four years, roughly, or after 210,000 blocks have been issued, the block reward drops by half. The first halving happened on November 28, 2012, after which the issuance of new bitcoins dropped to 25 per block. On July 9, 2016, it dropped again to 12.5 coins per block and will drop to 6.25 in 2020. According to this schedule, the supply will continue to increase at a decreasing rate asymptotically approaching 21 million coins sometime around the year 2140, at which point there will be no more bitcoins issued. Because new coins are only produced with the issuance of a new block, and each new block requires the solving of the proof-of-work problems, there is a real cost to the production of new bitcoins. As the price of bitcoins rises in the market, more nodes enter to compete for the solution of the POW to obtain the block reward, which raises the difficulty of the POW problems, making it more costly to obtain the reward. The cost of producing a Bitcoin will thus generally rise along with the market price. After setting this supply growth schedule, Satoshi divided each Bitcoin into 100 million units, which were later named Satoshis in his pseudonymous honor. Dividing each Bitcoin into eight digits means that the supply will continue to grow at a decreasing rate until around the year 2140, when the digits all fill up and we reach 21 million coins. The decreasing rate of growth, however, means that the first 20 million coins will be mined by around the year 2025, leaving 1 million coins to be mined over one more century. The number of new coins issued is not exactly as predicted from the algorithm, 
because new blocks are not mined precisely every 10 minutes, because the difficulty adjustment is not a precise process, but a calibration that adjusts every two weeks and can overshoot or undershoot its target, depending on how many new miners enter the mining business. In 2009, when very few people had used Bitcoin at all, the issuance was far below schedule, while in 2010 it was above the theoretical number predicted from the supply. The exact numbers will vary, but this variance from the theoretical growth will decrease as the supply grows. What will not vary is the maximum cap of coins and the fact that the supply growth rate will continue to decline as an ever-decreasing number of coins is added on to an ever-increasing stock of coins. By the end of 2017, 16.775 million coins were already mined, constituting 79.9% of all coins that will ever exist. The annual supply growth in 2017 was 4.35%, coming down from 6.8% in 2016. Table 6 shows the actual supply growth of BTC and its growth rate. A closer look at the Bitcoin supply schedule over the coming years would give us these estimates for the supply and growth rate. The actual numbers will surely vary from this, but not by much. Figure 15 extrapolates the growth rate of the main global reserve currency's broad money supply and gold over the past 25 years into the next 25 years, and increases the supply of bitcoins by the programmed growth rates. By these calculations, the bitcoin supply will increase by 27% in the coming 25 years, whereas the supply for gold will increase by 52%, the Japanese yen by 64%, the Swiss franc by 169%, the US dollar by 272%, the euro by 286%, and the British pound by 429%. This exposition can help us appreciate the saleability of Bitcoin and how it fulfills the functions of money. With its supply growth rate dropping below that of gold by the year 2025, Bitcoin has the supply restrictions that could make it have considerable demand as a store of value. In other words, it can have saleability across time. Its digital nature that makes it easy to safely send worldwide makes it saleable in space in a way never seen with other forms of money, while its divisibility into 100 million satoshis makes it saleable in scale. Further, Bitcoin's elimination of intermediary control and the near impossibility of any authority debasing or confiscating it renders it free of the main drawbacks of government money. As the digital age has introduced improvements and efficiencies to most aspects of our life, Bitcoin presents a tremendous technological leap forward in the monetary solution to the indirect exchange problem, perhaps as significant as the move from cattle and salt to gold and silver. Whereas traditional currencies are continuously increasing in supply and decreasing in purchasing power, Bitcoin has so far witnessed a large increase in real purchasing power, despite a moderate but decreasing and capped increase in its supply. Because miners who verify transactions are rewarded with Bitcoins, these miners have a strong vested interest in maintaining the integrity of the network, which in turn causes the value of the currency to rise.
The Bitcoin network began operating in January 2009 and was, for a while, an obscure project used by a few people in a cryptography mailing list. Perhaps the most important milestone in Bitcoin's life was the first day that the tokens in this network went from being economically worthless to having a market value, validating that Bitcoin had passed the market test. The network had operated successfully enough for someone to be willing to part with actual money to own some of its tokens. This happened in October 2009, when an online exchange named New Liberty Standard sold bitcoins at a price of $0.000994. In May 2010, the first real-world purchase with bitcoin took place, as someone paid 10,000 bitcoins for two pizza pies worth $25, putting the price of a Bitcoin at $0.0025. With time, more and more people heard of Bitcoin and became interested in purchasing it, and the price continued to rise further. The market demand for a Bitcoin token comes from the fact that it is needed to operate the first, and so far arguably only, functional and reliable digital cash system. The fact that this network was successfully operational in its early days gave its digital token a collectible value among tiny communities of cryptographers and libertarians, who tried mining it with their own PCs and eventually even started purchasing it from one another. That the tokens were strictly limited and could not be replicated helped create this initial collectible status. After being acquired by individuals to use on the Bitcoin network and gaining economic value, Bitcoin began to get monetized through more people demanding it as a store of value. This sequence of activities conforms to Ludwig von Mises' theory of regression on the origins of money, which states that a monetary good begins as a market good and is then used as a medium of exchange. Bitcoin's collectible status among small communities is no different from seashells, rye stones, and precious metals' ornamental value from which they were to acquire a monetary role that raised their value significantly. Being new and only beginning to spread, Bitcoin's price has fluctuated wildly as demand fluctuates, but the impossibility of increasing the supply arbitrarily by any authority in response to price spikes explains the meteoric rise in the purchasing power of the currency. When there is a spike in demand for Bitcoins, Bitcoin miners cannot increase production beyond the set schedule like copper miners can, and no central bank can step in to flood the market with increasing quantities of bitcoins, as Greenspan suggested central banks do with their gold. The only way for the market to meet the growing demand is for the price to rise enough to incentivize the holders to sell some of their coins to the newcomers. This helps explain why in eight years of existence, the price of a Bitcoin has gone from $0.000994 on October 5, 2009, in its first recorded transaction, to $4,200 on October 5, 2017, an increase of 422,520,000% in eight years, and a compound annual growth rate of 573% per year. For the Bitcoin price to rise, people must hold it as a store of value, and not just spend it. 
without a number of people willing to hold the currency for a significant period of time, continued selling of the currency will keep its price down and prevent it from appreciating. By November 2017, the total market value of all the bitcoins in circulation was in the range of $110 billion, giving it a value larger than the broad money supply of the national currencies of most countries. If Bitcoin were a country, the value of its currency would be the 56th largest national currency worldwide, roughly in the range of the size of the money supply of Kuwait or Bangladesh, larger than that of Morocco and Peru, but smaller than Colombia and Pakistan. If it were to be compared to the narrow money supply, Bitcoin's supply value would be ranked around the 33rd in the world, with a value similar to the narrow money supply of Brazil, Turkey, and South Africa. It is perhaps one of the most remarkable achievements of the Internet that an online economy that spontaneously and voluntarily emerged around a network designed by an anonymous programmer has grown in nine years to hold more value than is held in the money supply of most nation-states and national currencies. This conservative monetary policy and the pursuant appreciation in the market value of bitcoins is vital to the successful operation of bitcoin, as it is the reason that miners have an incentive to expend electricity and processing power on honestly verifying transactions. Had bitcoin been created with an easy money policy, such as what a Keynesian or monetarist economist would recommend, it would have had its money supply grow in proportion to the number of users or transactions, but in that case, it would have remained a marginal experiment among cryptography enthusiasts online. No serious amount of processing power would have gone to mining it, as there would be no point in investing heavily in verifying transactions and solving proof-of-work in order to get tokens that will get devalued as more people use the system. The expansionary monetary policies of modern fiat economies and economists have never won the market test of adoption freely, but have instead been imposed through government laws, as discussed earlier. As a voluntary system with no mechanism for forcing people to use it, Bitcoin would fail to attract significant demand, and as a result, its status as a successful digital cash would not be guaranteed. While the transactions could be carried out without need for trust in a third party, the network would be vulnerable to attack by any malicious actor mobilizing large amounts of processing power. In other words, without a conservative monetary policy and difficulty adjustment, Bitcoin would only have succeeded theoretically as digital cash, but remain too insecure to be used widely in practice. In that case, the first competitor to Bitcoin that introduced a hard money policy would make the updating of the ledger and production of new units progressively more expensive. The high cost of updating the ledger would give miners an incentive to be honest with their updating of the ledger, making the network more secure than easy money contenders. The growth in the price is a reflection of the growing use and utility that the network offers its users. The number of transactions on the network has also grown rapidly. Whereas 32,687 transactions were carried out in 2009, at a rate of 90 transactions per day, the number grew to more than 103 million transactions in 2017, 
at a daily rate of 284,797 transactions. The cumulative number of transactions is approaching 300 million transactions in January 2018. While the growth in transactions is impressive, it does not match the growth in the value of the total stock of the Bitcoin currency, as can be evidenced by the fact that the number of transactions is far less than what would be transacted in an economy whose currency had the value of the Bitcoin supply. 300,000 daily transactions is the number of transactions that takes place in a small town, not in a medium-sized economy, which is around the value of the supply of Bitcoin. Further, with the current size of Bitcoin blocks being limited to one megabyte, 500,000 transactions per day is close to the upper limit that can be carried out by the Bitcoin network and recorded by all peers on the network. Even as this limit is reached and its presence is well publicized, the growth in the value of the currency and the value of daily transactions has not abated. This suggests that Bitcoin adopters value it more as a store of value than a medium of exchange, as will be discussed in Chapter 9. The market value of transactions has also increased over the network's lifetime. The peculiar nature of Bitcoin transactions makes it hard to precisely estimate the exact value of transactions in Bitcoins or U.S. dollars, but a lower-bound estimate sees an average daily volume of around 260,000 Bitcoins in 2017, with highly volatile growth over Bitcoin's lifetime. While the Bitcoin value of transactions has not increased appreciably over time, the market value of these transactions in U.S. dollars has. The volume of transactions was 375.6 billion U.S. dollars in 2017. In total, by its ninth birthday, Bitcoin had processed half a trillion U.S. dollars worth of transactions, with U.S. dollar value calculated at the time of the transaction. Another measure of the growth of the Bitcoin network is the value of the transaction fees required to process the transactions. Whereas Bitcoin transactions can theoretically be processed for free, it is incumbent on the miners to process them, and the higher the fee, the faster they are likely to pick them up. In the early days when the number of transactions was small, miners would process transactions that did not include a fee because the block subsidy of new coins itself was worth the effort. As demand for Bitcoin transactions grew, miners could afford to be more selective and prioritize transactions with higher fees. Fees were under 10 cents per transaction up until late 2015 and started rising above $1 per transaction around early 2016. With the quick rise in Bitcoin's price in 2017, the average daily transaction fee had reached $7 by the end of November. While the price of Bitcoin has generally risen over time, this rise has been highly volatile. Figure 19 shows the 30-day standard deviation of daily returns for the past five years of Bitcoin trading. While the volatility appears to be declining, it remains very high compared to that of national currencies and gold, and the trend is still too weak to conclusively determine if it will continue to decline. The 30-day volatility of the U.S. dollar index is included in Figure 19 to provide perspective. 
examining price data for gold and major national and cryptocurrencies, shows a marked difference in the volatility in the market price of these currencies. Daily returns were collected for the previous five years for gold, major fiat currencies, and Bitcoin. The major national currencies each had a standard deviation more than seven times larger than that of Bitcoin. Bitcoin's volatility derives from the fact that its supply is utterly inflexible and not responsive to demand changes because it is programmed to grow at a predetermined rate. For any regular commodity, the variation in demand will affect the production decisions of producers of the commodity. An increase in demand causes them to increase their production, moderating the rise in the price and allowing them to increase their profitability, while a decrease in demand would cause producers to decrease their supply and allow them to minimize losses. A similar situation exists with national currencies, where central banks are expected to maintain relative stability in the purchasing power of their currencies by setting the parameters of their monetary policy to counteract market fluctuations. With the supply schedule utterly irresponsive to demand, and no central bank to manage the supply, there will likely be volatility, particularly at the early stages when demand varies very erratically from day to day, and the financial markets that deal with Bitcoin are still infant. But as the size of the market grows, Along with the sophistication and the depth of the financial institutions dealing with Bitcoin, this volatility will likely decline. With a larger and more liquid market, the daily variations in demand are likely to become relatively smaller, allowing market makers to profit from hedging price variations and smoothing the price. This will only be achieved if and when a large number of market participants hold bitcoins with the intent of holding on to them for the long term, raising the market value of the supply of bitcoin significantly and making a large liquid market possible with only a fraction of the supply. Should the network reach a stable size at any point, the flow of funds in and out of it would be relatively equal and the price of bitcoin can stabilize. In such a case, bitcoin would gain more stability while also having enough liquidity to not move significantly with daily market transactions. But as long as Bitcoin continues to grow in adoption, its appreciation attracts more adopters to it, leading to further appreciation, making this drop in volatility further away. As long as Bitcoin is growing, its token price will behave like that of a stock of a startup achieving very fast growth. Should Bitcoin's growth stop and stabilize, it would stop attracting high-risk investment flows and become just a normal monetary asset expected to appreciate slightly every year. Appendix to Chapter 8 The following is a brief description of three technologies utilized by Bitcoin. Hashing is a process that can take any stream of data as an input and transform it into a data set of fixed size, known as a hash, using a non-reversible mathematical formula. In other words, it is trivial to use this function to generate a uniform-sized hash for any piece of data, but it is not possible to determine the original string of data from the hash. Hashing is essential for the operation of Bitcoin, as it is used in digital signatures, proof-of-work, Merkle trees, transaction identifiers, 
Bitcoin addresses, and various other applications. Hashing, in essence, allows identifying a piece of data in public without revealing anything about that data, which can be used to securely and trustlessly see if multiple parties have the same data. Public key cryptography is a method for authentication that relies on a set of mathematically related numbers, a private key, a public key, and one or more signatures. The private key, which must be kept secret, can generate a public key that can be distributed freely, because it is not possible to determine the private key by examining the public key. This method is used for authentication. After someone publicizes his public key, he can hash some data and then sign that hash with his private key to create a signature. Anyone with the same data can create the same hash and see that it was used to create the signature. Then she can compare the signature to the public key she previously received and see that they're both mathematically related, proving that the person with the private key signed the data covered by the hash. Bitcoin utilizes public key cryptography to allow secure value exchange over an open, unsecured network. A Bitcoin holder can only access his Bitcoins if he has the private keys attached to them, while the public address associated with them can be distributed widely. All network members can verify the validity of the transaction by verifying that the transaction sending the money came from the owner of the right private key. In Bitcoin, the only form of ownership that exists is through the ownership of the private keys. Peer-to-peer -peer network is a network structure in which all members have equal privileges and obligations toward one another. There are no central coordinators who can change the rules of the network. Node operators that disagree with how the network functions cannot impose their opinions on other members of the network or override their privileges. The most well-known example of a peer-to-peer -peer network is BitTorrent a protocol for sharing files online. Whereas in centralized networks, members download files from a central server that hosts them, in BitTorrent, users download files from each other directly, divided into small pieces. Once a user has downloaded a piece of the file, they can become a seed for that file, allowing others to download it from them. With this design, a large file can spread relatively quickly without the need for large servers and extensive infrastructure to distribute it, while also protecting against the possibility of a single point of failure compromising the process. Every file that is shared on the network is protected by a cryptographic hash that can be easily verified to ensure that any nodes sharing it have not corrupted it. After law enforcement had cracked down on centralized file-sharing websites such as Napster, BitTorrent's decentralized nature meant law enforcement could never shut it down. With a growing network of users worldwide, BitTorrent at some point represented about a third of all Internet traffic worldwide. Bitcoin utilizes a network similar to BitTorrent, but whereas in BitTorrent the network members share the bits of data that constitute a movie, song, or book, in Bitcoin, the network members share the ledger of all Bitcoin transactions.